Asymmetrical Haircuts Justice Update with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So, my goodness, there have been more Syria justice developments in the last couple of weeks than I've seen for, for many, what well, feels like for many years. Maybe we can kick off with um, one of the things that you've been doing in your day job for Reuters. Yeah, I looked at a seizure report for the Commission of International Justice and Accountability called Assad's Ghosts, where they show how the Assad regime in the early years of the Syrian conflicts are from 2011 onwards, was essentially instrumental in setting up training and arming the so-called Shabiha militias. And uh, what makes CJ interesting, of course, is that they focus on linkage evidence. So they really have what they say is a paper trail of orders that, and directives from Syrian government agencies that track the developments from the very early days of the protests that eventually devolved into civil war uh, until the kind of formalization of the Shahiba where they were incorporated in the National Defense Force, which is essentially a militia that is a de facto part of the Syrian army. And does that mean that that kind of evidence could potentially come up in cases eventually? That's the hope, because uh, one of the things when I talked to CJ was also that they said there have been, a, there are a lot of universal jurisdiction cases about militias in Syria, but quite not so many about pro-regime militias, pro-Assad militias, and of those are not any of the kind of traditional Shahiba militias. And so the hope is that this kind of linkage evidence will lead to more universal jurisdiction cases. I think the general hope is that they see that the tension for Syria is slightly waning with everything happening in Ukraine, and that by putting the spotlight on different things that they find in these files to show basically the world that, hey, we have those files, maybe you should be doing cases with them. Well, we have not um, completely taken our eyes off uh, Syria. Um, we've got a very big case coming up at our local court, the International Court of Justice. Uh, that's a case brought by the Netherlands and Canada against Syria uh, based on the torture convention. But there's another bit also at the United Nations. There was a big decision to set up a bit of architecture around missing persons. This I thought was really interesting because not only have a very large number of people, I see you've put into the script 130,000, I see everywhere at least 100,000. I'm sure those figures are quite difficult to to, to pin down. Uh, these are people who are believed to have gone missing in Syria since the uprising against uh, Bashar al-Assad since 2011. And there's been a vote at the United Nations General Assembly to set up an independent institution to look for the missing in both government and opposition areas. So what was the resolution? How did it come about, Steph? This was the result of a grassroots coalition of Syrian families and advocacy groups who for years have been lobbying UN member states to set up this institution. Eventually, the vote was adopted by the 193-member UN General Assembly with a vote of 83 in favor, 11 against, with 62 abstentions. And the countries that voted for the resolution included the United States and other Western nations. Notable opponents of the resolution were Syria and its key allies, Russia, Iran, and China. 
I know that the details are still to, to be worked out, but I have read that it's called and we have yet another acronym to add to our, our incredibly long list, the Independent Institution on Missing Persons in the Syrian Arabic Republic. IMPSAR? IMPSAR. IMPSAR. Let's go for it, IMPSAR. We only have room to touch on this briefly and we obviously plan to come back to this because it looks like a really interesting model for other situations with forced disappearances. But we wanted to get an immediate reaction from survivors. So I contacted uh, Yasmin Mashin, who's one of the founding members of the Caesar family group. And Steph, maybe you can remind us what Caesar is? Yeah, so Caesar is the alias given to a former Syrian military police employee, a photographer who fled in 2013, and he took with him over 53,000 photos that were smuggled out on disks and thumb drives, and the images show the bodies of people who died in Syrian detention facilities, many of them showing signs of abuse and even torture. He took those as a kind of uh, military uh, or as a forensic photographer and at one point decided to start smuggling them out. The images are being used in several court cases. The website of the uh, Syria Files um, Foundation says that they were used in a case in Spain in 2016 as documentation and evidence. There are legal complaints based on the Caesar files in Germany, Sweden, Austria, and Norway. There is a French structural investigation based on those files, and some of the evidence uh, from it was also used in the so-called Koblenz trials of Syrian regime officials convicted of torture in Germany in the past few years. Yeah, I have the feeling we should do a whole podcast just on the the Caesar files at, at some point. I spoke to Yasmin uh, in Arabic. Just to give you a little bit of background, she was born in Derazor, which is uh, north of Damascus, you know, a couple of hundred miles away from there. And she'd lost all of her five brothers during the war. And here she explains to me about her her brothers. أنا تأثرت بالأخفاء القسري هالشي هذا كان حتى قبل الحراك الثوري السوري لكن بما إنه إحنا عم نحكي عن She told me that Omar, um, who was disappeared by the Air Force Intelligence in 2012 and then she actually saw his photo in the Caesar files uh, in those photographs in 2015 and her youngest brother Bashar was also disappeared this in case by ISIS, is believed in 2014. Um, she doesn't know what's happened to either of them properly since since then, apart from having seen that one photo. So I asked her how she felt when she saw that photo of Omar in the Caesar files. يعني في مشاعر كانت مختلطة بين إنه افتحت إنه هو ما عاد يتعذب. ارتحت انه عرفت مصيره وبين الغضب والالم اللي رافق انه احنا ما عاد she told me it was mixed a kind of mixed feeling a sense of comfort that she knows that he's no longer being tortured and that they knew actually what had happened to him but also she felt very angry and very very sad that she would no longer see him she also spent some time explaining to me how the victims' organisations had come together. And when we come back to the subject, maybe we'll do that in a bit more depth, uh, why they'd come up with this as one of the mechanisms that they thought might be useful, why they were lobbying for this. They 
feel it's actually is a crisis the that they really don't know the fate and the whereabouts of all these individual missing people and she told me that that UN resolution creating this new institution would actually have this structural participation for victims and families But as we've said, there's still a lot to be worked out about how this institution is going to be and they were expecting to have consultations directly with the NGOs on exactly what its terms of reference are going to be. There'll be a lot of uh, challenges because nobody knows exactly who is going to work where, how the partnerships will be formed, how it will work with the other existing mechanisms on the ground. And they're kind of being quite clear-eyed as to whether it's all actually going to be in line with what the families of victims want and whether it's really going to be in line with their expectations. So she was going to limit her expectations at this point, which sounded really sensible to me. Meanwhile, we're keeping a close eye on what is happening at the International Court of Justice. There is a case uh, there, which is a long haul situation that we were aware of for several years, but is now really uh, starting to come out. Um, by no means a quick fix, but the Netherlands and Canada have filed a case against Syria at the ICJ that we also like to call the World Court, taking it to task because they said that the Syria is breaking the UN Convention uh, Against Torture. Quick stop press from me here. After recording this podcast in July, the International Court of Justice announced that the provisional measures hearings will now be in October rather than this month. We always know that dates can change, but the substance remains the same. Back to Steph. This is kicking off with provisional measures hearing, which are kind of um, emergency measures that uh, countries can ask the court to order measures to make sure that things don't get out of hand anymore until they can hear the case on its merits. And that usually takes several years at the ICJ. I gave a call to Kira Weigard from the University of Leuven uh, to ask her a bit about the background and um, specifically what kind of references Canada and the Netherlands are using to other cases at the ICJ. Uh, one that she mentioned uh, was is the Myanmar-Gambia case, but the other is the Belgium versus Senegal case in which Belgium institutes some proceedings before the ICJ, alleging that Senegal was in violation of its obligation to prosecute or extradite under this uh, convention of torture. And the judgment in that case was the first time in the history of the ICJ in which it found that a state had standing, uh, in this case it was Belgium, on based on the obligations under the uh, Convention on Torture and the obligations are ergo omnes partes, uh, this kind of very strange Latin phrase. So I asked her exactly what does this phrase mean and how does it link to uh, this and maybe other future cases? The most important one is obligations, erga omnes, which means obligations that you have towards the entire international community. Then you have obligations, erga omnes partes, which is not the same and which is to be seen more in the context of certain treaties, such as the Convention Against Torture, but also the Genocide Convention, where you as a state party have obligations towards 
all the other state parties as a collective to that treaty. They really tie you to what is in that treaty towards everyone else who was also a party to that treaty. And so that is what the ICJ decided in the Belgium v. Senegal case, that in the context of the Convention Against Torture, these obligations, erga omnes partes, exist. Canada and the Netherlands also refer to another case, uh, and that is the Gambia versus Myanmar case, where Myanmar said that the Gambia lacked standing to bring a claim concerning acts that had nothing to do with the Gambia or with Gambians. And there the ICJ again said the genocide convention status as a treaty with obligation, erga omnes, so owed by each state party to all others collectively. And so in that context, each state party has an interest in compliance with the treaty. And so the Gambia was able to bring this claim against uh, Myanmar to the ICJ because of, again, these obligations, erga omnes partis. And so Syria, Canada, and the Netherlands are all parties, state parties to the Convention Against Torture. And so it's on the basis of these obligations, erga omnes partis, that Canada and the Netherlands have now said that they instituted proceedings against Syria for failing to fulfill its obligations under that convention. And so they've now, the Netherlands and Canada, have filed this case at the ICJ. And we also ask Kira, what exactly are the Netherlands and Canada asking uh, the court to do? Canada and the Netherlands have made seven provisional measure requests, and it's they're quite elaborate. So they ask, for example, that uh, Syria immediately take effective measures to seize and prevent all acts that amount to torture. Um, but they also, it, it goes much further than that. They also say that they want that Syria shall disclose the location of burial sites of persons who died as a result of torture, and that Syria shall not take any action which may aggravate or extend the existing dispute. So they they really ask a very comprehensive set of measures, which it will be very interesting to see if the court grants all of those measures. It was interesting to see that in, in the Gambia-Myanmar case, the Gambia also requested quite an elaborate set of measures. Uh, and the court granted most of them, if not all of them, and all unanimously. So we decided to catch up with Toby Katman and Ibrahim Olabi of Guernica 37 Chambers. And now they are best described as lawyers who have been assisting the Dutch government in bringing this claim to the ICJ, and uh, we had a separate conversation uh, with them, which we'll play you now in full, but we started with asking them uh, to explain to us the substance of the case at the ICJ. In a nutshell, Syria is party to the Convention Against Torture, uh, so are many other member states, including the Netherlands and Canada. Torture, even prior to 2011, was very prevalent in uh, in Syria, the Committee Against Torture, the treaty body that looks after the the, the convention um, in, in a way, uh, has made findings against Syria very clearly. But after 2011, uh, numerous UN documents, Commission of Inquiry reports, and, and many other international organizations, including victim and survivor organizations, have been talking about you know the, the mass and systematic scale of torture in, in, in Syria, which is a crime in itself under international criminal law, but also a breach of the torture 
Torture Convention. And what this case is about is the Netherlands and Canada invoking Syria's responsibility under the Torture Convention, which allows any party to do that against another party if there is a dispute as to the application of that convention. As you know, torture is also defined very widely. I uh, you know it's torture and other inhumane and cruel acts. Uh, and so the Netherlands and Canada have also made this about uh, sexual violences and forced disappearance and, and even the use of chemical weapons, which in a way, the way the victims suffocate can also amount to at least in uh, degrading and inhumane uh, uh, treatment. So it covers a very wide range of, of, of issues that would amount of torture over a, a very large, also kind of temporal time frame since at, since at least 2011. And just to add to that, uh, I think one of the reasons why it's important is it's because it's a question of state responsibility. Um, what we've seen are a number of cases um, under universal jurisdiction where uh, individuals within the, the the Syrian state apparatus have been held responsible before a court of law uh, for individual acts of torture, um, whether that's amounting to a war crime or a crime against humanity. Uh, but what we haven't seen is the Syrian state uh, being held responsible um, effectively for its its policy of using industrialized torture to to crush what was a peaceful revolution. I follow a lot of ICJ cases, and this is the f- I, th- I think the first, at least, that I've seen uh, based on the torture convention. Why isn't there such a case before, and why did you eventually land on the ICJ road to look at accountability for torture in Syria? I think many of us had been looking at different routes to accountability for Syria. Obviously, there had been the disappointment of the UN Security Council being able to refer the matter to to the ICC, and there had been obviously the difficulty in in getting the senior perpetrators before courts around Europe through universal jurisdiction. So I think that there had been um, that vacuum of accountability. Um, and the Netherlands in particular, who who we have supported through this process, have always taken a very clear line that they will pursue all avenues um, for establishing accountability for, for the Syrian conflict. It is right, um, and as you have followed the ICJ proceedings, you are quite right that this is the first case of its kind. The the other case that was brought under the Torture Convention was quite different in that that was between Belgium and Senegal for uh, establishing a, a, a route to hold the former Chadian leader uh, responsible. So that was really the, 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 the first case. Um, and this is, I think, untested territory. And it's... When, when you have two states that are not directly effect, affected by, by acts of torture, but invoking the torture convention, uh, I, I think Ibrahim and I have, have discussed this uh, on numerous occasions as to not only in the context of Syria, but in the context of many, many uh, situations where uh, torture is industrialized and, and, and prevalent, why this hasn't been used before. Uh, the interesting aspect of the Torture Convention being different to some of the other treaties that have been tested before the ICJ is that when the convention is ratified, uh, you don't opt in, you actually have to opt out. So there is a provision that gives jurisdiction to the ICJ, and it may well be that states were not aware 
of their responsibilities because they hadn't actively uh, opted into IC ICJ jurisdiction. It may well be that we will see a raft of states uh, seeking to run away from the jurisdiction of the ICJ, but as I'm sure you know, um, that will not have any impact on past acts of torture. Um, but but I, I honestly do believe that this is uh, un uncharted territory for, for, for many states, and we really have to applaud the Netherlands and Canada for, for identifying this and, and taking the matter forward. It sounds like you've found a kind of a dream route that nobody else had, had thought of before, but surely there must be some downsides to this route. I mean, one that I can think of is that it just takes forever. Well, I, what, what I would say to that is, and unfortunately, given the kind of political landscape surrounding justice for Syria, there is no one route that, that, that can be taken. It's more kind of an ecosystem of different processes and, and, and points. So you had some universal jurisdiction cases, um, you know, you even had some sort of accountability at the OPCW with suspending Syria's rights and, and, and privileges there. There is now a file sitting uh, on the desk of the prosecutor of the ICC with regards to forced deportation from Syria to Jordan, similar to kind of the kind of Myanmar, Bangladesh uh, uh, examples of trying to look at what made people flee the southern of, uh, you know, the south of Syria onto things. So, so it's a, it's it's really going wherever routes are 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 open and trying to open uh, new routes in the process. Um, but obviously, every route, as you said, has has a downside. For example, um, you know, this is a, a case of this is not a criminal court. It's about state responsibility, which is incredibly positive because it, it kind of invokes the entire system, the entire apparatus. It's not just about one individual, but but it's also there. There is no kind of a prison sentence at the at the at the end of it. That said, that in itself, that process can trigger a lot of prosecutions in in different European countries. Can actually because torture is both a crime and kind of a, a, a if you like a civil obligation that that that, that Syria owes under the, the 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 convention. So in a way, even the downsides of of, of or what this case is, I wouldn't call the downside. It's, it's it's something that the case cannot achieve or the court cannot achieve because it's not a criminal court. It lays a very strong foundation for criminal proceedings because it will look at torture at a state kind of level, and then people who are involved with the, with those states uh, with that state would have a difficult time saying, you know, we were not kind of linked uh, to it. The other issue that you raised in terms of time. Again, a lot of these processes, as you know, are in themselves the outcome. When people say, I want my day in court, they're not saying I want necessarily the outcome, right? They're, they're saying, I want I want to see the process. I want to see the wheel, you know, to start to start spinning. And given the sheer amount of evidence and the sheer amount of issues, time in this, in, in this situation is not necessarily a negative factor because it keeps the issue on the table. It keeps shedding light on the problems. It keeps showing the, you know, the volumes of evidence from sexual violence to rape to enforced disappearance to chemical weapons to torture to to everything that happens in in, in kind of detention centers on the table through a long uh, period of time so actually in in this case if you know survivor groups and victim groups keep shedding light on the process the process in itself i wouldn't see it as a as a, as a downside just before we move to Toby, who wants to add something to it, I just want to say for our readers who might be all versed in all the legal acronyms, but not so much in the others, the OPCW, of course, is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, where uh, they're also researching uh, alleged attacks uh, with chemical weapons in Syria. And that was what Ibrahim was referring to. And now back to Toby. Thank you. Just to add in one point, I think, uh, as, as Ibrahim has said, that there is... Uh, very limited uh, downside to the process other than 
obviously the time it takes and and, and I think the, the important thing to stress is the process uh, rather than the end result um, but I think one of the one of the ways in which or I would say two ways in, in which the, uh, the any downside can be effectively managed uh, one is by involving um, civil society and and the victim community in the process so that they feel part of that process. The other point is managing expectations as to what can and what cannot be done in this process. And I think certainly in, in our work in supporting the Netherlands, one thing which I, I would say both of those issues have been at the forefront of the mind of the team at the Netherlands um, Foreign Affairs Ministry in, in ensuring that people understand the process um, that the the Syrian victims community understands the process, understands what it can do, understands what it can't do. As Ibrahim has quite rightly said, it's not holding individual criminal responsibility, but it it is state responsibility under an international treaty, which is which is essential. I think one of the the issues that Ibrahim and I have certainly encountered is uh, ensuring that uh, those who may be critical of the process actually understand the process and understand what it can and what it can't do. And so that way, I think you are not only uh, managing their expectations, but also uh, educating those who would seek to criticise this process, uh, what it is actually for. And I think that's that's incredibly important. You've touched both on, on the role of the Netherlands and Canada in this um, as a kind of a, uh, initiators, at least of the of the ICJ process. Why these states? How did you land on them? Um, is this some kind of an idea that you shopped around several states and they were the ones that bit? Or is it organic uh, desire from the Netherlands to, to do this or from Canada? Well, what, what I can say to that is the Netherlands and Canada are both countries that have engaged civil society quite uh, extensively from the beginning of, of, of the conflicts. And ideas come about in, in different ways. But the Netherlands and Canada, uh, you know, were very appreciative of finding routes. Uh, and then when this route came along and, and you know, we took it seriously, the Netherlands initially and then Canada joining, kind of exploring it. We can't obviously speak for, for, for other states, but th- these are not countries that were not engaged in Syria, that did not support human rights in Syria, that were not funding human rights organizations, that were not engaging uh, victim organizations. They were doing all of that. And, you know, when when the opportunity presented itself, uh, you know, they were very keen on kind of finding ways to make it uh, to to make it happen. And it's, uh, you know, they're they're, they're countries that also are before the ICJ. My understanding is that their kind of engagement is also very, very limited as historic engagement, which again shows their, their, their willingness to kind of go into a new territory to push and, and how, how much torture matters uh, for, for, the, for the international community as a whole. Uh, you know, as an obligation that is owed to the international to the international community, and throughout the process, as Toby has said, both the Netherlands and Canada have engaged Syrian groups after even they've initiated the the, the responsibilities. Workshops were held, bilateral meetings were happening. As I said, they already kind of engaged through the the um, independent international independent uh, uh, investigative mechanism, the IIIM. They're both supporters of those processes, um, and again, they directly fund human rights or Syrian human rights organizations since very very early on so uh, they're not kind of you know your random candidates that you know decided over over day they were always looking for roots uh, and then when that you know when the idea came up uh, they kind of workshopped it and, and and moved it forward we try to make the podcast um sort of a little bit timeless occasionally of course you know sometimes it's all to do with the news and we're recording now on the 
10th of July and put it out at the end of this week. And I'm wondering, do we know whether you will see Syria in the court in the Great Hall of Justice or not, or how they might be represented? I'm getting already some shakes of heads. So maybe you could tell us what, what's known and what's what's not not known. Perhaps I could jump in first and then I'll let uh, Ibrahim come in afterwards. But certainly what is clear from what's already been disclosed publicly uh, by by the Netherlands and Canada in their in their joint statements is that there have been in excess of um, 66 diplomatic notes between between the parties. There have been uh, two in-person uh, attempts to negotiate the dispute as the torture convention requires. But when it came to arbitrating the, the dispute, which is obviously a, a further requirement under the convention, um, there was insufficient engagement, which is which is what prompted um, the, the filing and, and the request for issuance of provisional measures. At this stage, there is no publicly available information as to whether Syria will be defending. Um, what we've seen in some of the other matters, particularly uh, involving Russia, is that they will engage in the provisional measures hearing, but then then there is a lack of engagement in the in the full process. So so that of course is a possibility. That is speculation, of course. We 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 simply do not know whether Syria will attend and will defend and whether they will instruct a legal team to act on their behalf. I think what we can say is that obviously there has been a great deal of effort by by the Assad regime to to push for normalization and uh, re-establishment of diplomatic ties. Obviously, the Netherlands in particular has uh, not engaged in that process. But I think there there are two issues. First of all, the normalization. But second of all, this is the highest court of the United Nations. And regardless of whether Syria engages or not, the process will go forward. And obviously, if Syria refuses to engage, the matter will go forward. And I mean, it's almost a matter of default judgment. You still have to prove your case, of course, but it it will go forward by default with no defence. So I think the likelihood is that Syria will need to engage and will will be pressured by some of its uh, diplomatic partners, such as Russia and Iran, to, to engage in the process. But at this stage, we simply do not know. Yeah, I think we can see if you look, if Syria is taking the hints from Russia and Iran, you can see that they are engaging in, in ICJ processes in the Ukraine case in Iran versus US. They are Iran quite, quite proliferous now at the ICJ. So maybe Syria will also see this as a, an opportunity to vent their uh, standpoints or their, their propaganda, I think you could say, uh, at least in the case of Russia that we've seen. What are your expectations now? There is a hearing for the provisional measures. So our experience is that the ICG at the very la- at the very least will say something that you don't aggravate the dispute for both sides and sometimes gets more specific. What is the dream scenario for you, Ibrahim, in this case uh, of provisional measures? And then, you know, how long do you think the long grind will be to have an actual hearing on the merits? I mean, I, 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 again... I slightly would would wouldn't use the word dream scenario because I mean this is all a nightmare. This is this is all torture. This is all a horrific situation that is ongoing on. But at least what we would hope the court to be able to kind of 
given order on is is anything the list that the Netherlands and Canada came up with uh, is very reasonable I mean stopping torture ending uh, you know arbitrary detention you know the uh, you know ending enforced disappearances uh, you know allowing access to to, to detention centers these are th- these are in any case you know uh, obligations of Syria before you know it's it's not something new these are international obligations that Syria already has under various conventions it's it's not you know some sort of groundbreaking request that the Netherlands and Canada you know are, are making so I our hopes would be that these would, you know, the court would find these reasonable because they, they are life uh, preserving. You know, we're, we're talking about detention and torture that is ongoing now. This is not something that we're just dealing with a with a past scenario. So anything in that direction would be incredibly welcome. It will increase, it will put legal pressure on on, on Syria to comply with these requests in, in, in that sense. Uh, and again, in terms of timeframes, obviously we, you know, the, the, the ICJ is, is very stretched and there are a lot of cases going kind of ongoing you mentioned Iran previously you know Iran just kind of started proceedings against Canada to which Canada started proceedings alongside the UK and other countries against Iran it's 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 quite a it's quite a kind of a legal battlefield these days but again for me uh, personally time and and how long this takes on the merits is not necessarily uh, an, an issue specifically because um, it, it's more you know the, the the process itself keeps the issue on on the table so and so that and, and then the outcome gives you the kind of final judgment. So as long as kind of victim groups and and, and survivors uh, are able to see the, the the benefit of the process and are able to make the best out of the benefit uh, of the process, then you know time is not really of the essence here in in in, in that sense. The interim measures are definitely of uh, you know where, where time is sensitive because these are. Things that are ongoing, but once we get to the merits and, and and so on, it will be kind of a long long road. But that's not necessarily a bad thing in this situation. Toby, before I'm sure you want to add something to this, but I wanted to to ask Ibrahim, do you think that the the Syrian regime still cares about kind of the international legitimacy and what the ICJ might might say about them? Are are they still at the point where this is a consideration? No, so so I personally believe, and from watching how this Syria interacts with the international community, that they've never given up interest. They were always present at the UN. They were always making you know detailed speeches. They were responding to UN special procedures. They were responding to treaty bodies. They were responding to the universal periodic reviews. They attend the OPCW meetings. They push back and so on. And so they've never wanted to be kind of a rogue pariah state in the international community that doesn't care about what the international community says. They always said, you know, we are a founding member of the United Nations. And particularly now, given that they kind of welcomed coming back to the Arab League. And I think that was an interesting and interesting test to see whether they really care on being, you know, rehabilitated in the system. You might have seen the invitation that the UAE unfortunately extended to uh, Syria to attend uh, COP28. And so uh, they they definitely care about, uh, you know, being seen as a legitimate state, as part, as, you know, part of this international community. And, uh, and and so on. Uh, and so this this makes this case even more complicated for them, because if you don't engage in the, uh, you know, and the, and the ICJ is very good at reminding you of that fact in their press statements saying, you know, the ICJ, the principal organ of the United Nations, you know, so if you do not engage in that process, you're seen as a, as a state that's delegitimizing itself. But if you do engage, then you also have to deal and face the horrific abuses that you and your security system and, and security apparatus have, uh, have, have done towards to, towards your own people so it's not a politically it's not an easy situation out for syria either way i mean certainly as far as what we would want to see through through the process i think there are two things really uh, which are particularly important one is when you look at some of the requests that are being made 
it is not only to to ensure that the tens of thousands who are still detained as political prisoners have some form of resolution to to that. And, and I know that we're dealing with a very difficult situation where we're dealing with the Assad regime, and so nobody from the from the Syrian community is going to have any confidence in in any process. But but I think at the same time, what we do want to see is that um, political prisoners at least have a way to effectively be released, and that there are mechanisms that are going to be established that will deal not only with the judicial oversight, but also the the adjudication of, of claims. And also the holding individual perpetrators accountable, and I think that through the interim measures, I think that those are some of the sort of the most important um, aspects of, of what is being pushed for by both the Netherlands and Canada. We don't just want to see a 500-page ruling from the ICJ holding Syria accountable for breaching the torture convention, which which we all know, and of which the evidence is overwhelming. What we want to see is concrete results come out of that, where there is a process that is going to be established for for the longer term. And and I think one of the things that that uh, certainly Ibrahim and I have spoken about uh, extensively in this is that this is this is a this is a long term process, not and not just the proceedings of the ICJ, but the adjudication of these issues. And quite frankly, when we look at past conflicts. Um, the, the long-term rehabilitation of torture survivors is something which is quickly forgotten. Once we hold a handful of perpetrators accountable, we don't actually think of the victims anymore. And I think that's why this process is particularly important for Syria, because it's going to have to rebuild itself. It's going to have to reestablish the necessary institutions that will transform, we hope, Syria into a democracy, but also have those those institutions that have been so lacking, um, which are the, the, the judicial institutions. And I think this process, and and, and maybe we, we are shooting for the stars now, but I think that's what we want to see. I think it's really interesting, as uh, Ibrahim said there, the way that the ICJ is becoming one of this main legal battlegrounds, because I also asked Kira exactly about how come the ICJ is so busy at the moment? She pointed out that there are many different countries who seem to want to use the court. It's not just being something where, you know, to use those awful phrases, global north countries are bringing stuff, but it's also something where a big range of countries, including very small countries, are making use of the court's facilities. And uh, this is part of what's making the court so busy. It is extremely busy. The court currently has. 18 pending cases, and two are being heard under deliberation. Four were instituted this year. And of those four, two are advisory opinion requests. So we also see that the court is really being seized by many different actors. And then on top of that, you have all these interventions in the Ukraine-Russia genocide case, where now we're going to have 32 states submit written observations, which is also a huge challenge to what the court then also calls the good administration of justice to make all of this go smoothly. And so it's it's extremely busy. And as part of my research in the last two years, I've asked a number of those judges also about their workload and how they would assess their workload. And most of them told me that their workload was fine, that it was a, a full-time job, but that it was it was doable. I do wonder what they would answer 
if I would ask them this summer, if I would do another round of interviews, I think the answers would be very different. And of course, then there are elections at the end of the year. So that also has an impact on when the court can schedule hearings and when it can deliberate. And on top of that, we have ICJ elections coming up that may also get in the way of several hearings. And it's interesting what happens to some of the stalwarts of the court, uh, including the Russian, uh, I think he's vice president of the court at the moment, Gavorgian. Uh, will he stay on? Uh, yeah. What do you expect, uh, Steph? Are you going to be watching the uh, the elections closely? Probably not as closely as other elections that are going on in my in my patch of reporting. But I think it's always interesting to look at it. It's always hard to make news out of it directly. But the way the voting goes does, does show which kind of countries are in attendance and which are not and how these things can play out in the court. I think maybe it, off the top of my head, I think it might be interesting for an institution as the ICJ to keep a Russian judge just as they have a Chinese judge on hand so that they could never get this, you know, this obvious criticism that they're uh, shunning these kind of countries. So if you have these people of what I think we can kind of safely say are occasionally problematic countries in, in international justice, to have them on the court, and especially because you now have an American president, you want to counterbalance that with some with some other people who are not so easily dismissed as, uh, I don't know, capitalist U.S. pawns, if we, if we go very, very uh, uh, straight to the point. So uh, I imagine that we will keep on top of what is said in this particular case, because it does seem to be quite a significant one. If this route of using the torture convention uh, in the Syria case is kind of established as a potential route, then potentially we might see some other cases using the same convention at the ICJ brought by by other countries. So I, I can imagine, along with so many other things we have to cover, that we're going to have to uh, to to follow this one. Yeah, especially because Toby explained that you'd have to opt out of this, which is unusual for these treaties where you don't, uh, you usually have to opt in for ICJ jurisdiction. So here you have to opt out. So that may be past a lot of countries. There also, but the question and also is how big is the appetite for countries to kind of take the lead and take other countries to court over torture? Because Obviously, Syria is not the only, I'm sure Syria is not the only member of the torture convention that actually does things that could be legally amount to torture. And yet they're the only ones in all these years that have only have been brought before the ICJ. So I don't know how big the appetite is to go after all these countries, but we're, I'm sure if this works, a lot of human rights organizations will push that route and we'll see which countries want to get activists at the ICJ over that. Okay, onwards. And upwards. Onwards and upwards, always stuff that's for us to do. <laughs> we keep being busy over here, but uh, we love it. So uh, we'll keep you updated on all the other court cases going on in our patch. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com.
and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. Hi, my name is Fritz Streif. I'm a human rights lawyer and a long-term listener to the Asymmetrical Haircuts podcast. International justice is my passion, so much so that, like Janet and Stephanie, I also started a podcast, which you might like as well. It's called This Syria Trials, and each episode looks at a different part of the struggle for justice for Syria, a country that has seen unspeakable levels of violent criminality since the revolution began there in 2011, and which now finds itself in a, let's say, awkward process of what some call normalization. We have a series in English and a series in Arabic. You can listen to the whole of the first seasons of each series now. Just search for This Syria Trials wherever you usually get your podcasts or head to our website 75podcasts.org where you can also check out our other productions and find transcripts of all episodes.